Now, I want to ask you a very personal question. Here's the personal question. Do you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty? One of Shakespeare's most villainous and horrible creations is, I'm sure you'll agree, Lady Macbeth, who with bloodthirsty ambition, she's in the play called Macbeth. I've got to say, it's probably a sign of uh, the sexism of Shakespeare's age that the play is not called Lady Macbeth because she's by far the most interesting character and her husband's a complete sop in the whole thing. She really drives the thing. And with bloodthirsty ambition, she urges on her husband to kill the King of Scotland, Duncan, and to steal his throne. That's only one of a series of murders they commit, and it all ends badly for them. It's a bloodbath, and of course it's a tragedy after all, so that's how those plays work. Now, late in the play, right towards the end, Shakespeare shows us this very strange scene where Lady Macbeth's maidservant calls a doctor. She calls the doctor in to watch her, her mistress sleepwalking. Because every night, Lady Macbeth, we don't know her first name. I've always wondered what her first name might have been. Perhaps it was Doris. Doris Macbeth would seem to work. Anyway, she had been getting out of bed each night and trying to wash her hands. Wash her hands with the blood of her victims in her sleep. And as she rubs her hands frantically, she says the immortal line, Out, damned spot. Out, I say. Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. Can the doctor help her? When he sees her do this, he turns to the lady-in-waiting, the maidservant, he says, more needs she, the divine, than the physician. In other words, this is not really my department. It's really, you'd better call the priest. There's nothing I can do as the physician here. The problem of guilt is really a matter for him, not for me. Now, I think we think the opposite today. In fact, you can imagine a scene in the modern version of the play, a version of the play where the, the doctor refers her to counselling. That's what he would do. We don't think of guilt as a useful or accurate or helpful emotion. If we experience guilt, we think of it as a disturbance of the mind rather than a, a problem of the soul. Now, the father of psychotherapy, Sigmund Freud, you probably heard of him, he thought that guilt was an emotion that had been developed to keep society functioning by making you and me fear authority and fearing loss of parental love. So it kind of keeps us all in check. Even when no one's looking, we do what we're supposed to do. Guilt keeps us from being uncivilised. But, says Freud, it also makes us deeply unhappy because guilt causes us to suppress our natural impulses and feelings. So, sure, we behave, but we're also really unhappy at the same time. That doesn't really help us very much. And so in 1930, he wrote this. He wrote this. The price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of the sense of guilt. We're guilty, but we're also unhappy. We're guilty and so therefore civilized, but then that makes us miserable. Feelings of guilt, says Freud, need treatment, not atonement or punishment. We need to be freed of the prison of our guilty consciences and taught that everything is just fine. It's all right. The therapist and the pharmacist are what we need. But I think Freud's onto something. In the same way that an aeroplane can crash because faulty instruments give the pilot misleading data, so our guilty feelings can give us distorted information about the real world. You can, you know, you can have an excess feeling of guilt. Sometimes 
That comes because of bad parenting or bad religion. It can give us too keen a sense of guilt. Guilt can be a crippling emotion, especially when it's tied to things that aren't actually sinful. Lots of us in the contemporary world can attach feelings of guilt to food, for instance. We have this really weird cycle of guilt and pleasure and guilty pleasures with food. We kind of binge eat and then we binge exercise to kind of atone for our overeating. It's probably why there were, a few years ago, some ice creams named after the seven deadly sins. But it's also possible, it's possible to have too much guilt, it's certainly possible to have too little guilt. If we do not feel guilt at doing the wrong thing, then we're basically are psychopaths, because we don't have any empathy for anyone. We, we're simply, we're capable of cruelty, and then just moving on. Not experiencing guilt or shame does have the nice kind of effect that it means you can do whatever you, you feel like doing. You can do whatever your impulses tell you to do, but I'm sure you can see that it's not a great idea for everyone else. I don't actually want to know someone who has no sense of guilt. Now, I spoke recently with a woman. I was speaking in Malaysia, and I was speaking on the topic of forgiveness. And after speaking on the topic of forgiveness, she came up to me with a friend, and she expressed that she was feeling terrible feelings of guilt. And uh, she told me the story of why she was feeling guilty. She said her teenage daughter had had a life-threatening disease. The woman had at one stage been very frustrated with this daughter, as mothers are, sometimes are with teenage daughters. She was very frustrated, and she said some terrible, terrible words to her daughter. She told her daughter at one stage to go and throw herself off the balcony. Now, a little later on, uh, this woman went on a business trip, and while she was on this business trip, trip, her daughter suddenly died. So the woman came to me in tears. She said, I cannot find any release from this terrible, terrible guilt. The first thing I needed to say to her, well, well, I wonder what you would say to her. I think the first thing I needed to say to her was that her feelings were actually an accurate gauge of how things were. What she had said was truly awful. And it was important to say that it was. If someone was to tell her that it wasn't bad to tell your daughter to kill herself, then that would be a lie. That would be wrong. Her instruments were indeed giving her an accurate reading. But what now? How could I help her with the terrible feelings of guilt, the unbearable burden of guilt? Certainly, feelings of guilt, whether they be true or not, are extremely damaging to our relationships and to our happiness. All relational flourishing is impeded by guilt. Our relationships are affected when we feel guilty. Uh, a friend of mine said uh, to me, I rang, I rang him up because he'd had a problem with addiction over many years, and uh, this had, of course, harmed many of his friends and his family members, those closest to me. So I rang him up and I said, I'm talking about guilt. What can you tell me? And he said, you know, guilt is a toxic, these are his words, a toxic source of anger. He says, I cover the feeling that I have failed, the knowledge that I've failed as a son, as a brother, as a father, as a husband, as a work colleague and a friend. I cover all of that up because I can't face it. So what I do is I express anger and contempt for others rather than face the truth of my failings. And so he told me that 
he thought the guilt was the key to his addictive behaviours too, because the addiction was a comforting escape from the terrible reality of his guilty feelings. But of course, the addiction brought with it new feelings of failure and guilt. So what's to be done with guilt? We need it to feel. You don't want to know someone who doesn't have any sense of guilt. But by the same token, feelings of guilt are unbearable to live with. What does the Bible have to tell us about this problem? Well, first of all, we need to see that in the Bible, the inner feeling of guilt, the subjective side of it, the personal side, isn't as important as the objective reality of guilt. The Bible helps us to see that what matters ultimately is not how we feel, though how we feel does matter, but whether our feelings match the actual way things really are. See, you can feel guilty and not be guilty. You can be guilty and not feel guilty. What matters most of all, says the Bible, is are we guilty or not? And throughout the Old Testament, we hear the idea that God is the judge to whom the whole world will give account. God's character is righteous. And that means that he will act to make things right. He is righteous, so he will act to make things right. As the maker of the world, he is also its judge. And, says the Old Testament part of the Bible, he is appointed a day. It says it again and again. He's appointed a day, a great day, when he will judge the world, setting wrongs to right. When he will address individuals and say, have you, have, what have you done with yourself, with your gift of life? And he will address societies, and he will say, in particular... How have you treated the poor and the downtrodden, the outcast? We're to imagine a great trial scene, a courtroom. It's a picture of how God's justice will work. There will be truth speaking, as there is hopefully in an earthly courtroom. We hope there's truth speaking. In God's courtroom, there will definitely be truth speaking. And there will be an answer to that truth speaking called justice. An answer to it, just as we attempt to do that in an earthly courtroom. Human beings will be held account for the way they've lived individually and corporately. Now, I know that there are people here who give their working lives to courtrooms, but I've only been once or twice as a participant myself. Uh, you may have had uh, experience on that side of the ledger uh, in a courtroom. It's a pretty terrifying experience, actually, because you do feel exposed. When I was a witness, I felt terrified, even though it wasn't my issue. <laughs> I just was giving evidence in this particular case. And then I didn't really even understand what the case was about. It was about tax, which goes without saying. I have no idea about tax. And secondly, the second time was I was actually a defendant. Um, now, this was a speeding fine, and it came about because I don't have a UK license, and I'd broken the law in England, and uh, because they couldn't punish me according to my Australian license, they said, you have to go to Didcot Court and face up to the magistrate there. So I was surprised at how intimidating it was. I was guilty and I was planning to plead guilty and there was a photograph to prove it and so I was just going to walk in and say, hey, I'm guilty, it's just an administrative problem, tell me what I have to pay, I'll pay it and let's be done with. I thought it would be a formality but there I was sweating with anxiety as I went before the magistrate. And just as I went before and I said, I'm guilty, it's fine, I'll pay whatever is required, the police prosecutor stood up and he said, I think we should double this fine, not for any particular reason other than he seemed to be bored that day. And I couldn't believe it. Anyway, uh, the, the magistrate didn't, didn't agree with the prosecutor, thank goodness. 
The picture of this final court scene, this final court scene before God the judge is something that Jesus teaches too. We shouldn't imagine that somehow it's, some, it's part of the Old Testament and not part of the New Testament. Jesus too says that God is the judge and there will be a final judgment. He talks in many of his parables about this idea of a last day courtroom. He talks about a day when many might presume to know him and yet he won't know them or when the sheep and the goats are separated. Now at the same time as we've been in our culture moving away from guilt as a useful idea, we've also been moving away from this idea of the biblical, the biblical idea of God's judgment. Uh, even in churches, it's been less popular, less comforting, to say, less, less, uh, less fashionable to talk about God's judgment in this way. And I, I get it, I really do. If our own guilt is too much to bear, and we'd rather not talk about that, then the idea that we have to face and answer God, face up to God and answer him, as our judge, is surely even worse. But I think we think it's worse because we haven't thought about it. God's hatred of sin and evil is not some pathological side of his character, but a great blessing to us. God hates sin and evil just as much as he loves good. In fact, if you think about it, part of being good is hating evil and acting against it. I hope you hate evil and act against evil in the world. If God is good, then he must be the judge. He must be the one who stands against that which is not good. And this is a great blessing to us because it means, in the first place, that the world in which we live is a meaningful place. That what we do and who we are is taken seriously. No matter how much we infantilize and dehumanize ourselves and others, God takes us seriously as adults who are responsible for what we do. And another thing is this. It's far better to know that he will ultimately judge us than to leave the last judgment to ourselves or to other human beings. I mean, after all, who do you want your judge to be? It's not a question, actually, of having no judge at all. We will have a judge one way or other. Others will judge us. We live in an extremely judgmental society, after all. Uh, it's one of the strange things about our society is that we hate the idea of being judgmental, and yet we are extremely judgmental. The word judgmental, actually as a sort of negative thing, oh, you're so judgmental, actually only appeared in the dictionary in the mid-1970s. It didn't actually exist before that. I, I was really surprised to learn that this week, that this idea of being judgmental, that's a bad thing, is a relatively recent, uh, recent thing in the English-speaking world. But even so, even though we hate the idea of being judgmental and we accuse others of being, we judge others for being judgmental, we are extremely judgmental. We judge each other for our taste in clothes, for our education, for our social background, for our bank balance, for the work we do, and for our political views, just for starters. But far worse is the prospect of becoming our own judges. Singing without irony, Frank Sinatra's I did it my way as we go down into the grave. We've already seen how easily we are prey to our faulty instruments of judgment. We make mistakes even about ourselves. We either make ourselves miserable with harshness or make others miserable by going too easy on ourselves. So far better for us to say, God, you are the judge. This is a great mercy for us because God is a truer judge of you 
than your own wayward conscience. He is a truer judge of you than other people. He's declared what is right and wrong. He's told us what human behavior is like and he's given us in Jesus Christ and lived example of what human behavior ought to look like. We've got a range finder to check our judgments against and in, in God we have the truth. But where does that leave us? Now in his famous letter to the Romans, Paul spends the first three chapters telling us that whether we feel guilty or not, the reality is we are. Objectively speaking, we haven't met God's standard. We've fallen short of the glory of God. There isn't a case of there being some okay, decent people over here and some really evil people over here. This condition of falling short is a universal condition of human beings as the children of Adam that we are lawbreakers. The Jews were lucky because they had the law. But having the law didn't make them less guilty of breaking it. It just meant that they should have known that they were breaking it. And so Paul says, Jew and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. There's no difference, he says. But Paul's not doing this because he enjoys making people squirm or because he's some fire and brimstone preacher. He's doing this because he's setting the scene for a great announcement. And that's what our passage today shows us in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Let's start there. Now, apart from the law, says Paul, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has made known his righteousness. He's, he's revealed it. Disclosed is such a tepid word. Revealed it. He's broadcast it. He's shown it. And what does this mean? God does not have any attitudes that are not also actions. God's righteousness is not something that sort of sits there like some static quality. It's something he does. He puts it into practice. He hasn't just told us how good he is. He's actually done something that shows how good he is. God's righteousness is God's powerful activity of making right what is wrong in the world. And what is it that he does to make what is right to make right what is wrong in the world and in us too. We'll have a look at verse 23 and through to 25. These are great words. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. The first bit is a summary of everything he's been saying up to now. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But by the miracle of grace, God justifies the sinner or makes righteous the sinner. The word justifies and righteousness are the same basic word. And what does that mean? Remember the courtroom picture. God as the judge declares the guilty to be not guilty. In his righteousness, he declares us to be righteous. There is, as Paul will say, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is this not a miscarriage of justice? We have uh, Jenny regularly attends here. I don't think she's here tonight. She's a magistrate, and I'm here to, I'm sure that if she was here tonight and we said to her, Have you ever called a guilty person innocent? 
uh, she would say, never. If I did so, I'd lose my job. I'd be accused of corruption. People would suspect me of being bribed. It would be a miscarriage of justice for me to call an innocent person, a guilty person, innocent. We'd want her sacked as a magistrate. But God upholds his justice by providing Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for us. Jesus, the innocent man, stands in the place of our guilt. He becomes sin for us and in the cross bears the cost of sin, of our sin, upon himself. This is the extraordinary power of God's grace, the pers deeply personal power that it is. Even though you are guilty, God declares you innocent because he himself pays the price you owe. We don't normally expect this kind of action of judges. In April this year, Judge Jonathan Durham Hall of the Bradford Crown Court in Yorkshire in England was charged with misconduct, actually, because he offered to pay a teenager's fine. The teenager had been before him. She had stabbed, uh, grievously assaulted a man who had been abusing her. So uh, she was guilty of the crime, but Judge uh, Hall, he said, if anyone tries to force you, I, I, I award a fine against you, but if anyone tries to force you to pay it, I will pay it myself. He was upholding the law. He had to, but he paid the fine, was offering to pay the fine of the guilty one. Likewise, God does not pretend there's no problem. He speaks the truth. And we speak the truth to him as we come to him like the tax collector saying, have mercy on us. We are guilty. But God justifies us in Jesus Christ, not holding our sins against us because he held our sins against Christ. If you are standing in Christ, with Christ then, there is now nothing that condemns you. You are righteous because God has called you righteous. You are righteous, not self-righteous. We hate the idea of being self-righteous. That's, again, being your own judge, isn't it? I am righteous. We, we declare ourselves righteous. But if God declares you righteous... You truly are righteous because you have it from the one whose right it is to declare anyone righteous. Now, how could this help the woman I met with the crippling sense of guilt? How might this help you and me? Well, it helps her to acknowledge the truth and not to hide from it. Knowing that God justifies her by His grace means that she can speak honestly to herself and to God about what she has done. She can lay it out in all its horror, knowing that she is not going to be condemned. She knows that God takes her seriously, but she knows that God is a God who makes righteous those who are guilty. She knows that God declares her not guilty. He will not hold her sin against her, but takes it on, herself, on himself. The highest court of all will find her innocent. Not because she was able to twist God's arm in some way, or win him over in some other way by being an oppressive person, or by doing something to kind of somehow balance the scales of karma, having said these terrible things to her daughter, but because Jesus Christ has atoned for her, has paid the price she owed. The struggle for her and for us is to now believe God 
when he declares her righteous. To believe God when God says, you are not guilty, you are righteous. But at least she has the objective reality to begin with. I know how hard it would be for her. I'm sure that she's going to spend many, many hours praying that she may have to seek help in order to get to work through it all. But she has at least this founding basic truth that God does not condemn her. So why should she condemn herself? Does she ultimately know better than he does? And this is true for you as well. God is the just judge who justifies you and me by his grace. You can stop then hiding the truth of yourself. You can stop pretending. You can stop denying the reality of who you are. You can lay it all out in its horror before God. Because God has made for us a safe space to put down our pride or to come forward with our shame. Or most likely, since we're pretty complex creatures with both our pride and our shame. If you accept his invitation, you have as a free gift then peace with God as an objective reality. Now, I have the great privilege of sitting by people on their deathbeds as part of my ministry. And several times I take communion to people or I pray with them or read the Bible and I say, is there anything you'd like to say now to God? And um, I've been with people who are in their late 80s and early 90s and the extraordinary things that they tell you at that moment, things they've never told anyone else in their family, things that their family know but they've never told anyone outside, things that they've never acknowledged, things that they are now suddenly doubtful of. And at that moment, I can tell them that God hears them and that he in Christ declares them not guilty, not condemned. But it makes me wonder, why do you have to wait till you're 92 years old to have that moment, to carry that? For year after year after year, as one particular guy I spoke to recently, he's 89, and the particular thing he was really, really upset about, he carried with him for 53 years inside himself. Why wait? Why not have that moment today? Why not have that moment in the present time when you come before God with the thing that you carry and you give it to him, like the, the tax collector in that parable, and just come to him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, because you will find in God a merciful and righteous God, ready to forgive and to declare you righteous. Which one of the two men, the Pharisee or the tax collector, went home justified? The righteous one was the tax collector. And if you are, in the eyes of God, declared righteous, then who can stand to condemn you? Is social pressure a higher judge than God? Does your family, who are critical of you, exist in some higher court above God, who has declared you not guilty, righteous? Do journalists and the media, and social media, do they sit in some higher courtroom than God? Do you yourself, as your own judge, somehow get to overturn God's verdict and correct him where he is wrong. Why condemn yourself when God himself does not? God is judge and yet 
in Jesus Christ, this judge submitted himself to be judged so that you and I can be justified by faith in him. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, for this amazing truth, we praise you. And we ask now for the courage to come forward uh, in, in humility with our real selves and to seek from you that declaration of righteous. We thank you that in Christ you paid uh, the price that we owed and you made it possible for, you, for your own name to be glorified as the righteous one and yet uphold us as righteous as well. And for this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.